I don't know what's going on. That's all right. So here we go. We're going to jump into the book of Joshua. We are, today makes 120 messages through the book of Joshua. So uh, we are in Joshua. We're entering into Joshua chapter number 20 today. But before we get to Joshua 20, you know I love a good review, so I'm going to give you a review from last week. So we had a message that was called a just reward. And what we did was we looked at the life of Joshua. And what was amazing, Joshua being the leader of the Israelites, what we saw was the fact that we were looking at his life in relation or in light of the inheritance that he was going to receive because of his faithful service unto God. So what we saw with him was the fact that he was humble, he was faithful, he was thankful, and he was obedient. His humility was revealed in the fact that as he was given the job, which was to make sure that the 12 tribes would receive their inheritance, interestingly enough, Joshua saved himself to the very end. He did not receive his inheritance until everyone else had received theirs. He placed himself behind everyone else. And we saw the correlation and the picture of Joshua, which is, if you took the name Jesus and you were to take it and you were to go back and translate it into Hebrew, guess what it is? It's Joshua. It is the very same name. And what we saw is the fact that Joshua was a beautiful picture of Christ. And when we look at the example of Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, verses 7 through 8, says, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him a form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And we discussed the importance of humility and the life of a Christian. It is direly important. We are supposed to model the life of our Savior. To be a Christian means to be Christ-like. So we have no place for pride in our lives. We are literally supposed to be humble as as he was humble. Then we looked at Joshua's faithfulness. We looked at his faithfulness. And what we saw, we recognized the fact that, bottom line is, he was, um, not only was he uh, faithful in regards to doing what God had called him to do, but he did it completely. Joshua fell or followed through all the way to the end. He made certain that God's will was accomplished. And what we saw was the fact that he had made a request to God. He had a specific city in mind. And what was so cool was God gave him the desires of his heart. And we saw the fact that God rewards faithfulness. This is a principle that we see again and again and again throughout Scripture. God says, if you'll do this, I'll do this. You do this, I'll do this. He sets up expectations, and then guess what? If we meet the expectations, God blesses. He wants to work through our lives. And we saw this principle that you and I have been shown again and again and again throughout Scripture. And listen, God rewards faithfulness. He always has, and He always will. And that's the request that God has for us, that we would just be faithful. And how many of us struggle? being faithful. Hello. Okay. So I'm not alone. So the question we asked ourselves was this. If God was to evaluate our lives right now, the way we're currently living, would he call or list us as being faithful? Right? Something to contemplate while we sit here. All right. To change the subject to make you feel better about yourself. We looked at the aspect of the Danites, right? What we did was we did a comparison. We looked at actually the thankfulness of Joshua. And what we saw with Joshua was Joshua had a different attitude. Those people that we studied right before that were the Danites. And what we saw with the Danites is the fact that they, because of their own unfaithfulness to God, they found themselves in a situation where, guess what? They were not thankful for what they'd been given. They actually looked at what God had given them, and they found themselves to be frustrated by it. They said it wasn't enough. And because of their unthankful hearts, they desired something more. They sought something more. This is the issue of discontentment that is absolutely rampant in our world today. Most people are constantly looking for what the next thing is going to get, because when you get the iPhone 15, you know what's coming. (laughs) The 16. And I hear the camera's a little bit better. Man, when am I going to get rid of this piece of junk? It's crazy. Discontentment is something that people struggle with. And yet God tells us again and again and again that we're to be thankful. 
There's a destructive impact to discontentment, to that lack of being unthankful, man. It put, sets us up for such destructive paths. And we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks. Amen. That's talking about things that we want, but also things that we don't want. Amen. Sometimes disease, and we think about how in the world could I be thankful for disease? Because, you know, a lot of times people deal with an adversity in their life, and what it does, it stops them in their tracks, makes them reevaluate, and allows their light to shine in a moment of darkness that gives hope to people that don't know Christ. There's opportunities in every situation and circumstance. And to be thankful is to be satisfied, and what satisfaction means is contentment. And boy, let me tell you, if this world could just experience some contentment in Christ... So as Christians, if we live a discontented life, we don't live, it's not in congruence with who it is we're supposed to be. So it's that aspect of being, of being thankful. Then we looked at the obedience. What was Joshua's obedience? He was steadfast and committed to the very end. What we saw was the fact that he made certain that his job to fulfill the, 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 the deliverance of the tribes was completed. Now, he was not perfect. We saw that in spite of his mistakes, his missteps, and his failures, Joshua never lost sight of the, lost sight of the mission. He, now, what can happen many times when people fail in their Christian lives is they can feel like, you know what, I should just, I messed up. I should just quit. You know what, I've tried, I messed it up, and you know what, I'm done. And they experience what's called guilt. What does guilt do? Guilt draws us away from God. Now, there's two things. There's guilt and there's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is when we, we've sinned against God. And guess what godly sorrow does? It draws us to God's Word. It draws us to prayer. It draws us to the people of God. But then if you have guilt, that's called the sorrow of the world. And what does guilt do? Guilt makes you go, you know what? I don't need to be in church. You know, I, I praying right now, I don't feel like praying. That word, you know what, I, that Bible over there, I don't need to open that thing up and find out things that are wrong with me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to pull away. And so they feel very similar. One will draw you to God. That's the Lord working. The other is Satan trying to push you away from God. So we've got to be conscious of this. And what we find is disobedience gets us in that place. But what we saw with Joshua was this beautiful picture of obedience to the very end. And what we saw with the Lord Jesus Christ is to his very last breath, right? It is finished. The work, the work was done. And how cool is that? And that's God's expectation of us that we would finish right. Now, past the intro, we're going to get to what we're talking about today. We're going to change gears, and we're going to shift from looking at individuals and different groups and kind of their history and their story, and we're going to be looking now at more of the societal structure that God's going to put in place to help the Israelites to become who it is He expects them. He wants them to accomplish His will. And what we have to realize is the Israelites in the Old Testament, just like today, they had issues of justice that they had to deal with. There were crimes taking place. There were things going on, and guess what? Justice needs to be a part of a society. Whether or not people believe it or not, we all need to stand accountable for the crimes that we commit. If you go into Walmart and you take stuff, guess what? They should tackle you on the way out. <laughs> just saying, if I'm there, I'm going to tackle you. I'm just saying. Um, but the point is this. They had the same issues that we do. And what God does is he puts some parameters in place to allow them to understand how it is they should implement justice in the message today, which is titled A Way of Escape. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today, for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, Lord, I have studied, I have prayed. Uh, God, I have committed myself with the time and the energies. And God, I know that you've spoken to me, and I'm asking you now that you would speak through me. Uh, Lord, that I would not be, uh, not be heard, but Lord, that I would be nothing more than an instrument that you would use to speak your truth. Uh, God, remove the human element from this message. I beg you, and please, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us to have ears to hear? 
And Lord, that we would hear truth from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Three, sorry, I've been around my granddaughter too much. Um, the Lord, verse number one says this, And the Lord also spake, when we see that also spake, it's basically saying additionally, God also spake unto Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And so as we consider these instructions from the Lord, what I'm going to do is actually do my very best to draw a parallel between what we're going to see in these cities of refuge and the justice that's demanded, and we're going to do a comparison actually to the Lord Jesus Christ in our comparison. And I believe today what we're going to see is how God remarkably displays His Son and His sacrifice throughout the Word of God. And it's remarkable. It's amazing how many times if we'll take the time to just slow down when we read the Bible, because a lot of times we want to read and just fly through. But if you stop and slow down, you start to see Jesus all over the place. What's so awesome through the entire Old Testament? You can find Jesus again and again and again and again. It is truly remarkable. But what we're going to do is our comparison today. We're going to recognize that in both of these, in the cities as well in Christ, we'll see four things. We'll see a, a safe place to run. We'll see instruction through His Word. We'll see a repentant heart required. And we'll see deliverance from death. And through our next couple of messages that we're going to go through in just chapter 20, I'm going to be using that same comparison. We're going to be tying it back to, the, to, to Christ and the cities of refuge. But first, let's look at this, a safe place to run. The Lord also spake unto Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge. Now, the word refuge first appears in Scripture. There's a principle in Bible study, and one of those principles is the law of first mention. The very first time a word shows up in the Bible, it has a specific purpose. God's trying to telegraph a meaning from the very first time it appears all the way through the rest of the Bible. And what we find here is in these refuge, the very first time they appear is, in, is the introduction when God is speaking to Moses about the refuge cities. And we see it in Numbers 35, verse 6. And it says, Among the cities which ye shall give, speaking in the future, unto the Levites there shall be six cities for refuge, which ye shall appoint for the manslayer, that he may flee thither, to them ye shall add forty and two cities. So refuge is simply a, a place of shelter. It's someplace safe to hide. Numbers 35, what we see is the fact that God gives additional details about these cities. He makes reference to the fact that they're Levitical cities. Now, he makes reference here, there are going to be six cities that are given. And then he said that there's going to be 42 additional cities that are going to be given. So the Levites are going to be given 48 cities as a whole. What we know about the Levites is they don't actually receive a physical inheritance. All the tribe members receive a physical inheritance except for the Levites. Their job, their responsibility was to be ministers to the people. They were supposed to minister God's love. So what happens? They didn't have land. They were given authority in certain specific cities. We see in Numbers 35, 14, it says this, you shall give three cities on this side, Jordan, and three cities shall give ye, uh, shall ye give in the land of Canaan, which shall be of refuge. And we'll see the distribution in chapter 21. But remember, the Levites were to have no land of their own. Joshua 18, verse 7 says this, but the Levites have no part among you for the priesthood, notice this, the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. So their job was to not fall in love with the land. They were supposed to separate themselves from the land, not set their heart or set their, set their affections on the earth, but to set their affections above. God was to be their inheritance. That was the whole purpose of this. And if we hear that, and, and if we've read the Bible at all, 
It makes us go to the book of Colossians. And we see in Colossians chapter number 3, verses 1 and 2, a correlation to you and I. They were supposed to forsake the world and turn to God. And notice what it says in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, speaking to the church. If ye then be, if ye then be risen with Christ, you're born again, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Notice verse 2. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And so God's expectation of the Levites closely mirrors His expectation for His people. What is it telling us? It's telling us that we're supposed to be holy. We're supposed to be consecrated. We're supposed to be separated from the world. Peter references God's initial command from Leviticus 20, verse 7. 2,000 years later, he makes this reference in 1 Peter 1.16. Because it is written, referencing back to Leviticus, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so the fact that these six refugees or refuge cities are to be set aside, these specific locations that are already consecrated unto God, it gives us an, an aspect of the, that, that there's a spiritual connotation to these cities. There's a connection to God in these cities of refuge. They're directly linked to Him. And then I want you to peer, listen to these following scriptures. So we see the word refuge. I want you to hear this. I'm going to give you, I've got one, two, three, four, five, just five, but there's plenty more. Psalm 9 verse 9 says this, considering what a refuge is, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 62 verse 7 and 8, in God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Psalm 91.2 says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him will I trust. Psalm 142.5 says, I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. When I'm in struggles, man, I need to go to God. Amen. How many of us have figured that out to be true in our lives? Amen. Man, oh man, I'm telling you, sometimes you're just getting hit from all sides. There's storms, there's weather, there's wars, and you're in the midst of it. And you're running around your underwear just, ah, trying to survive. And you're like, man, oh man, and lightning striking, you're just running, running, running. I'm going to get to the refuge. I'm going to get to that strong tower. And you get in there and you slam the door. Man, you find rest. You find peace in the Lord. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. What's interesting is we take that word refuge. It shows up 46 different times in our Bible. And in those 46 times, if it's not describing these cities of refuge, almost every other one of those is describing God Himself. Picturing the Lord as humanity's refuge, and that's exactly what He is. Now what's interesting is the danger that's referenced for us in verse number 1. It's linked to the repercussions that accompany this accidental or unintentional death of someone. And what we have to understand is the fact that, listen, this is uh, um, taking a human life in the Bible, scripturally, is a sin worthy of death. It is a life for a life. But here in Joshua 20, we're talking about accidental death, where the perpetrator did this without malice. It wasn't planned. It, was, it wasn't hatred-backed. It was reflecting the fact that this was an unplanned circumstance. This was an accidental situation. We see motive is always at the utmost importance to God. Motives, are, motives matter. The Bible talks and warns us about the fact that if we give, we express charity, right? We do wonderful things for people. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It gives a whole delineation where Paul's talking about charity, charity, charity. But he says, he says I do all these things. Like I, feed my, I, give my, I give all my belongings to the poor. I give my body to be burned. I do all this. But if I have not charity, he says, it is nothing. 
So God, so, so the point is, God knows the heart of man. God looks within us and He knows our desires. So in these situations, these circumstances, when we find ourselves, we've, we've made a mistake, we've fallen short, this person here has done something that is, that is worthy of death, what we find is the fact that God in this moment extends to them grace. Amen. God knows that sometimes bad things unintentionally happen. How many of us have ever messed up in life and hurt somebody or done something stupid? My goodness gracious. Amen. I could write a book on doing stupid things. My soul, that's my whole life. But bottom line is, what do we see? Grace. Grace. And that's exactly what's being done here. We see grace being extended to someone who is worthy of facing a penalty, offering a safe place for them to run when they've made a mistake. And that's exactly what He does for you and I. Every day, man, His mercies are new. And guess what? He extends grace to us. Grace is something that's offered that's not deserved. How beautiful that we live in the age, the age of grace. And what's so beautiful about that is that the fact that we see here the Lord's heart towards humanity. Now, He is a just God, and that's very important for us to understand. He's a just God. He doesn't just simply damn someone without forgiving them, damn someone for because of their sin without giving them a way of escape, a place of refuge, which He made for us through His own death. Jesus made a way of, re- of, of reconciliation, of restoration, of redemption through His own death. And we see this amazing truth that God loves humanity. But can I tell you, there are people that are out there that are in churches right now. There's one down the street from here. And those folks are teaching what's called Reformed theology. And in Reformed theology, and you also hear them called a Calvinist or someone that teaches the, 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 uh, the, the doctrine of grace. And in someone who teaches that principle, teaches those concepts, what they see is they don't see a God of love as we see here described. These are people who preach that God created a large portion of humanity without hope of salvation. The sad thing is the Bible says, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many shall go, but narrow is the way to salvation. And these people believe that there's a small chosen number of people that God selected for salvation while He created the rest of humanity solely for destruction, giving them, listen, a sin nature, yet while at the same time making them also incapable, incapable of recognizing the gospel and responding to it, ensuring that they're going to go to hell. Now, amazingly, this is incredible, but this is a doctrine that is very, very well founded, and you can find it all over the internet if you go search. If you want to go find the deep things of God, boy, oh boy, you're going to hear all about it. But you know what this does? This says that God created these folks with an incapability of receiving grace, the incapability of receiving the gospel. They have a sin nature, and though they are incapable of receiving the gift, He's going to penalize them for not doing so and send them to hell. Does that sound like a just God? Oh my goodness. That's horrifically unjust. That attacks the very nature of God. It makes him vindictive and hateful where God is a loving God. God loves the world for God so loved the world. But if you give that verse to somebody who's in that doctrine, you know what they'll tell you? Well, that's the world of the chosen. That's the world of the elect, those that were selected for salvation. That's not what the Bible says. You've got to let the Bible say what the Bible says. And you know what? You could never be put on a desert island with a Bible and come off a Calvinist. You only become a Calvinist because someone else teaches you ridiculous doctrines like that. Sorry, that's not really my notes necessarily. That's just my own personal... (laughs) 
But it's unjust. It's horrifically unjust. And yet, what does the Bible tell us about God's justice? What do we hear? Isaiah 52, uh, 45, 21 says this, Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Here he goes. Have not I the Lord God himself? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says this, He is the rock. He is, his work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. God's always judging. A way of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. Amen. God is just. So He would not do something unjust. He would offer a way. And so what we see is God is just. He makes a way for any and all who would, who would come to Him. Romans 10.13 says this, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know what whosoever means? Whosoever. That's Anybody. You got a pulse, you got ears and a brain, man. Hey, guess what? You're qualified. You're a whosoever. God's given us all a safe place we can run. He's not hidden it. In fact, He's proclaimed it throughout time through His Word. Amen. And that's our second point, which is this instruction through His Word. Verse 2 says this. Where have I spoken to you by the hand of Moses? Here the Lord is referencing the instructions that he gave to Moses in the wilderness, whenever, way before they even came there. Numbers 35, verses 10 through 12, just the introduction. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye be come over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then ye shall appoint you cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the slayer may flee thither, which killeth any person at unawares. And they shall be unto you cities for refuge, from the avenger, that the manslayer die not until he stand before the congregation in judgment. Again, we see justice. We see things done, right? The Bible says, talks about being uh, nothing being proven unless it's in the sight of two or three witnesses, right? So God is just. And so God is instructing his people. Would you stop that? That was Siri. I apologize. And so God is instructing his people with specific instructions to ensure that they make biblical decisions as opposed to emotional ones. Because guess what? If let's say your loved one was killed and it was an accident, boy, there's a part of you that wants to get avenge, wants to avenge that, that situation, that circumstance. And their law was a life for a life. And so God's trying to keep them from making bad choices. We can see in God's instructions that he's given them guidelines to protect not only the one that's guilty of taking the life, but also the one who would seek to avenge the life. Again, God's grace. We see his guiding hand at work, not only through the way of escape, listen, provided, but also through the instructions in how to do so. Numbers 35 verses 9 through 34 exhaustively give you every aspect of, listen, how the cities would be used, as well as the offenses that would qualify. So he defines those who would receive, those, he defining when refuge would be extended and when judgment should be passed. And when we make the parallel to the refuge that we have, right, in God, and we can consider what Scripture does. The Scripture, the, the Bible that God preserved for us, it's easy. As we go to the Word of God, how we can see, listen, God directs us to find safety, healing, and restoration and him while still pointing us to his commitment for justice. God is just, but God is also loving at the same time. And just as Moses communicated God's word and directed the Israelites, the Bible communicates his word to us. You see, all of humanity, 
everybody, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter how broken we may be, how much knowledge we may have, how much understanding we may experience, understand every single person on this earth, God is drawing them. He's drawing. It's a common drawing. John 6, says this, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And you see that where it's where it says, No man can come to me. If you were in the Calvinist faith, if you were in the Reform, you know what they would tell you? There's the proof. That's Remember how I told you you, were, you, had, you had no ability to receive it? Well, there's the proof. God says it himself. But do you not realize what this is actually saying? If you understand it in context, it's talking about the fact that God's grace offers something to everybody that none of us are deserving. Salvation is offered to the world, but then we get to choose. God didn't predetermine who was going to be saved and who was going to be lost. He predetermined that, guess what? When we got saved, that we would become more godly, and we'll see that in a moment. But we see here in the Reformed faith, this verse proves... They say that this first proves God chooses only a specific group of sal- for salvation, while the rest he arbitrarily sends to hell. What this verse is actually revealing is that it's only by God's grace to offer us salvation that we can actually choose to receive it. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Notice this. Here's the introduction. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's a matter of of faith and faith alone, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not works, for we are his workmanship. Notice this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Notice this. Unto good works. It's not talking about salvation. Which God hath before ordained, the fact that we would become more like him, that we should walk in them. What was preordained? Was it salvation? No. It was the fact that when the Spirit of God gets inside of you, that guess what? By the nature of the Spirit of God being inside of your heart, you're going to naturally start to change. The fruit of the Spirit is revealed in the life of someone. That's when Jesus says, by their fruits you shall know them. When you see them and you start to see the works of God coming out of them, you're going to recognize them as His. God's love for humanity compels Him to call out to the lost world through the written, spoken, and lived word. And this is why a godly testimony is so incredibly important. Because those people that will not take the time to read the Bible, who, you know what, who would just shut their ears to preaching, many times they can watch us in silence. Just be kind, just be gracious, just be understanding, just have ears to hear, just to be kind. When they see the fruit of the Spirit in our life, it makes them give this, gives more credence to what God's Word says. So many people just want people to, you, you want to go out and, and you know, preach at people on the street and hold up signs that you're going to burn in hell, you're going to burn in hell. How many people get reached like that? I can't imagine very many. But you know what, a conversation just talking about life and helping people to realize what you've been through, where you've come from, Amen. your brokenness and how God's healed you through that brokenness yes. gives hope to people who goes, you know what, I don't, I don't, otherwise they look at the world and they just see nothing but, 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 but you know, what do they want to call it? hypocrites. Yeah. But if they meet just one who's real, Oh, my soul. Yes. You know what they'll do? They'll hold on. Yeah. Problem is we have a whole world full of hypocrites. Amen. People that want to say they're Christians, but they don't live like Christians. And the Bible says in the, book of, or in, the, in the book of Acts that they were first called Christians in Antioch. Notice it says called Christians, meaning that they earned the moniker Christian based upon their life, not based upon the tattoo they wore, the T-shirt they had, the bumper sticker on their car, or the fact that they said, oh, I'm a Christian in America, blah, blah, blah. Great. How do you live? Right? Because they earn the moniker. Christian means to be Christ-like, not just to claim that you are a believer. Where am I at? Romans 10, 17. 
So God's Word is what changes lives. It's where truth is found, where hope is established, and where faith is born. Romans 10, 17 says this, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The key to this whole thing is the Word of God. Jesus stated it this way in John 8, 31-32. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If ye continue in my Word, then are ye my disciples. And do you know what a disciple is? A disciple is a follower. He says, so if you are actually living my word, then you are my disciples. Right? We could all be disciples. Verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You see, if not for God's word, we would not have any understanding of what truth actually is. Right. We'd be left to our own devices to develop in our own hearts what we thought was right and what we thought was wrong. So if I'm okay with stealing, and I come to your house, and I take your stuff, but you're not okay with stealing, we have a conflict. But if you agreed that stealing was okay, well, I could just come take your stuff and you come take my stuff and we'd be fine. <laughs> but that's not how it works, right? There's one established truth. It's not my truth and your truth. There is a truth. Without the truth, lives are filled with sin, unrest, anger, sadness, and ultimately confusion. This is where we live today. We look on the internet, we watch the news, and man, oh man, we see confusion galore. People don't even know what they are. It's a sad reality, but this is an indicator of the times, an indicator of the times. Our godless culture and the hopelessness that consumes it are frightening reminders of the sad reality. For you see, the truth can truly set us free, free from the bondage of sin, free from unrest, anger, sadness, and even confusion. Praise the Lord. Listen, as, as Paul is addressing, one of the things you've got to realize, when you go to First and Second Corinthians, much of First and Second Corinthians were written to a church that was off course. And what they are is their corrective instruction. And so what will happen is people go and they get, they'll get all this stuff and they pull things out, sometimes questions, and they'll make them doctrines. 1 Corinthians is about correcting the church and getting them back on course. Notice this when he's correcting false doctrine, 1 Corinthians 14.33. This is what he says, For God, because there is confusion in their churches, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. There should be order. There should not be confusion. But you see, in order to be able to hear the truth, we must be willing to listen. And this is where God's drawing takes place, right? This is in order to realize that we need a Savior. Guess what we have to first realize? That we're lost, right? This is, this is a big issue. You got to know that you're lost. And this is why God gave us, why he gave us the law. Romans 3 verses 19 through 20 explain it to us. It says, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world, listen, that all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law does. It shows us our guilt before God. Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For, here you go, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So why did God give the law? He gave the law so that we can measure ourselves. How can I measure my righteousness against God's righteousness? And I go, wow, boy, I fall short. I'm in trouble. If I've got to live perfectly, I'm never going to do it because I've already messed up. Man, I've messed up this whole shebang. And as I've messed up, guess what? Now I realize that guess what? I need, I need a Savior, which brings us to our next point, which is number three, a repentant heart required. That the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither. Now we can see here the one who's guilty of taking a life is reacting to what it is they've done by recognizing the seriousness of it, recognizing the consequences of their actions, and they're seeking asylum. Notice that the description of the slayer, 
Okay, so the slayer, notice this. This is someone and says in this point in this scripture, it says that this person was unawares and unwittingly. So someone died, they were not aware of what they did or they were, or they were just clueless. So both they and the one that were killed were both victims of circumstance. But though they were ignorant to what they did, they recognized that they are still accountable. There are consequences to our actions. There always, always will be. You can see it through the accountability that we draw here. Now we're going to start to take this idea of a recognition of accountability, and we're going to transition it over to our example with Christ. We're going to start to see it through Him, finding our refuge in Him. As we saw in Romans 3, verses 19 through 20, the law God gave humanity was for the purpose of revealing sin. For you see, we have all sinned. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. That little, that little tag on the back end is for those people that go, ah, my grandma's pretty righteous. Because yeah. he, he goes, no, not one. Because we'll all think we know somebody, but listen, we're not. The Bible says that all of our righteousness are, are filthy rags before the Lord. Amen. And so you and I do things, we do it so many times for self-serving purposes. Romans 3.23 says, clear out. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is the sad and yet universally true story of humanity. We don't have to teach our kids how to lie when they are small. Oh, no, we do not. Because by nature, they know how to lie, right? You go upstairs, you pray with them, you put them in bed. All right, you guys stay in the bed, okay? Yes, sir, okay. Go downstairs. You guys in bed? Yes, sir. Lies. You know how I know that? Because that was me. I'm leaving back in the bed like, yes, sir. And it was you too. Don't don't, don't think, hey, I'm not the only one. By nature, we just know how to lie. It comes to us just like that. So what we have to consciously do is teach our children to be honest because lying comes naturally. And guess what? It's the same thing true for us. Why does the Bible have to tell us in Romans 12, 17? It says, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. You need to be instructed because your nature is going to be lie. That's just who you are. But listen, lying is just one of a myriad of sins. To sin simply means to miss the mark. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a term from archery. If you were shooting at a bullseye and you missed the bullseye, you sin. just means you missed the mark. And so what's the mark that we're shooting for? Righteousness, holiness, godliness. So when we do things that are outside of that realm, outside of the bullseye of God, we are sinning. And so we've all experienced, unfortunately, that we are going to fall short. None of us are, none of us are perfect. And this is where repentance comes in. Because repentance simply means to turn away. That's all that it means. If I'm going to repent, so if I was going to go east, I'm not good at directions, we'll just say this is east, <laughs> and I'm going to repent of east, I'm going to turn west. I've got to turn my back on east in order to go west. I can't be like, err, The Bible says the devil-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, right? Yeah. We've got to figure out where we're going to stand, where it is we face. So we recognize repentance is this aspect, right? And so what we see here is, This passage is showing us someone turning from what they have done and seeking refuge, repenting. And when someone who does not know Christ recognizes their sin, whatever it is that they've done, no matter what it may be, and they turn from it to find refuge in Christ, they are, by nature, repenting. To repent is simply the vehicle that gets us to the place where we can choose Christ. Because if I'm facing the world and I don't repent of the world, I cannot be receiving Christ. It's 
God is black and white. You choose one road or the other. It's yes or no. It is death or life. Death in the world, life in Christ. Seeking refuge. Turning away from the things of the world. This is repentance unto salvation, and it's just a matter of faith. It's just a matter of faith. Repentance is nothing more than the vehicle. It's not a work. It's just simply a place where your heart is. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 8? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, right? It is not who you are, as the Calvinists would tell you. It is the gift of God. It's a gift, a free gift offered by Christ who paid the price. All we have to do is choose to receive it. It doesn't cost us anything, but it cost him everything. Romans 10, verses 9 through 13 says this, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, notice this, Whosoever, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all, hello, hey, all, is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word shall is a promise. He says, if you'll do my part, you'll do your part. Guess what? I'll do mine. He always faithfully comes through. It's not talking about a select group of individuals or only ones that were created for salvation, but for whosoever. And then lastly, upon seeking refuge, we see that the one bearing the shame of taking a life could enter that city and find deliverance from death. Verse 3 finishes this way, And they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. In the Jewish culture of the day, there would have been a family member who was, it was their responsibility to take the life of the one guilty of killing their loved one. They were called the avenger of blood. They were to deliver justice. And it was their right by law to do so. Remember, it's a life for a life. And when we consider our lives, the things that we've done, the people that we've hurt, the sins that we have committed in our lives, man, and we consider them in comparison to God's law, we put ourselves up to the measuring stick of of God. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lust. I'm paraphrasing. But we think about these things, and we go, yep, done that one. Done that one. Done that one. Man, I have, I have failed. You know what we find? That we all have the same issue. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have come short. Yeah. Every one of us. We've all missed the mark. We, we've all sinned against God. That's just the, the reality. And because of our sin, we will face justice. The Bible calls it the second death. It is a spiritual, spiritual death. But here's where the heart of God is revealed. His love for each and every one of us was displayed through Jesus Christ offering himself. Offering himself as a payment for the debt that we had incurred. If you go out and you have uh, $10,000 in parking tickets, you know what they're going to do? They're going to arrest you. (laughs) They're going to impound your car. And they're going to take you to court. And when you show up there... Let's say that Brother Eric shows up, and you're sitting there, and little do you know it, but he goes back to the cash register, cashier, whatever, whatever they, I don't know what it's called, the person that collects the money at the courthouse, 
And he goes, what's the debt? And they go, $10,550. And he's like, here you go. Scratch the check. Hands it to him. And suddenly, here you are, guilty as sin, man. You are guilty. You've done it, and you've run from the cops for five years. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they're like, uh, yes, bailiff, what is it? Uh, he's free to go. Really? Yeah, his debt was just paid. And so when I stand before the Lord one day, when you stand before the Lord one day, you'll say, you know what? Your debt's paid. You messed up life. Jesus loved you so much. And those last breaths, when he said it is finished, he was paying your debt. How amazing is God. And see, the thing is, so many people lose sight of the fact that why he came, it was a life for a life, a requirement of the law. Notice what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law. I'm not here to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The law required a life for a life, and I'll give mine in your place. No greater love than this than a man laid down his life. For his friend. God made a refuge for those who are guilty of sin, a way of escape. Salvation through Jesus Christ. The question is, have you run to him? Has he been your refuge? Man, I pray that he is. Can I tell you this? His arms are wide open. He loves you right where you are, no matter who you are, no matter how broken you may be. He loves you. Yes. And he's paid for your sin debt. If you have received him, if you stand today, if you sit today, born again, let me ask you this. Is your life displaying the gospel message to the world around you? Does the world know that there's a refuge available to them? Most don't. That's why it's our job to tell them the way we live, the things we say life we live for people. It's God created us for a purpose and gave us a mission to complete. It's up to us to do so. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that you've revealed to us today. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself in scripture yet again. God, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us right where we are. And for my brothers and sisters that are here today, and maybe they're struggling, they've got some issue in their life that they're dealing with. God, I pray that your hand would be upon them. I pray, Father, for strength, for healing, for restoration from brokenness. God, would you help them to have a new perspective on the the tribulations of life? Lord, would you help them to realize that, God, they've been given an opportunity to witness and to share the word of God through their brokenness to help someone else who's struggling today. God, many times we don't, I can look back at my own life and understand why was my marriage, why did I have to go through the time period where I almost lost my marriage? Because you know what, that through that brokenness, my wife and I can bring hope to families that are struggling. And God, you use brokenness to heal. So thank you. And for our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, listen, I don't necessarily know where I stand with God. Look, 22 years ago, I'd never been in church my whole life. I didn't know anything about God. 
but someone took the time to share with me who Christ was, the fact that he loved me in spite of myself. I was a mess. I wasn't searching for the Lord. I had all kinds of sin in my life, but God loved me. And when I was, that truth was shared with me, and I understood that not only did I have sin in my life, which I already knew, but I realized that, that Christ loved me, even me, and that he died on the cross for my sins. And I was offered the opportunity to receive Christ as my Savior. There was no magic prayer. There's no ceremony involved. It's nothing more than opening our hearts to a loving God who's drawing us even as we speak. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ, you've never received him. You might know who he is. You might believe in him. So that's one, one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to know he's your Savior and know you have a relationship with him. And I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to receive him as your Savior. Now, there, again, there is no magic in the prayer. It's not the words. It's your heart that God is listening to. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. In your heart and mind, I'm asking you to repeat after me and talking to God if you want to receive Christ as your Savior. Repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm so sorry for all that I've done wrong. I now understand that you love me in spite of myself. And I'm asking you right now in the best way I know how, to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sins, and to give me a home in heaven. Lord, I want to live for you. I'm asking you to guide my life and use me for your glory. I will see you one day in heaven. But until then, I want to tell you that I love you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Heads